The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. They have been ministered. In 1876, 1876, the federal government launched an initiative that affected the east coast of Florida. Most of Florida at that point was, it was frontier. It was basically jungle. And there was a, there was a problem that was happening because people would sail south and they'd be sailing along the coast. They wanted to keep um, in uh, eyes view of the coast as they're sailing down to help them navigate. And often if a storm suddenly came up as they're sailing down the east coast of Florida, it would oftentimes run the ship ashore or run it into a reef and there would be a shipwreck. And so what would happen is these people, a lot of them would survive the actual shipwreck. They would abandon ship or they'd find themselves in the water and they would somehow make, the, make their way to shore. And you can imagine how utterly exhausting that would be to swim for the shore against the crazy turbulent waves of a, of a stormy ocean. But they would get to shore. But because at that point, the eastern, uh, the eastern part of South Florida was not developed, they'd practically be coming onto an exer- to a deserted jungle. And so they'd get, some of them would survive, they'd get to shore, but then once ashore they would die of typically dehydration, they couldn't find water, die of starvation or just sheer exhaustion. And in the uh, early 1870s there was a particularly bad shipwreck and the entire crew was lost and so they launched an initiative called Houses of Refuge and they dropped along the shore Five houses of refuge starting down in Miami and then every 25 mile increment. So there was a, a house of refuge placed on the beach in Fort Lauderdale and then up north into Palm Beach County. And, and several years later, as those five houses of refuge were thriving, they built another five, taking it all the way up to St. Augustine. Now, um, here's what the houses of refuge would look like. They look like a house. Here's an actual historic photograph. That's the actual house of refuge on Fort Lauderdale Beach, right there. Right there on the beach, you can see there's not much else there. Um, this, is, this would be basically near where Sunrise Boulevard hits A1A, okay, in Fort Lauderdale Beach. Just as a reminder, this is what it looks like today. Go to the modern day picture. It's different today, okay? It's a little bit different. But at that time, that original house of refuge is there, and it's pretty much, um, there's nothing else. Now, the government would provide the house. They just need volunteers to go live in that house, and they would give them um, like a, an annual salary to live on that, in that house, and then their job was after a storm to walk up and down the beach as far as they could looking for survivors. Now, imagine that. You're given beachfront property, and your only job primarily is to go for a walk on the beach after a storm. It's not a bad gig right there, okay? But it's actually much worse than it sounds um, of, because they were completely isolated. 
they could go days, weeks, maybe longer without seeing any other human being. Okay, They had no other infrastructure behind a couple other settlers in the region that they would have to trade with. And so they were almost completely isolated. And in fact, many of them, they're living in almost the jungle. Many of them contracted diseases and, and from all the mosquitoes and all the things in the area. And many of them died um, living in that house. So this was not just like an easy job. They knew they were taking on a lot of risk to go and live in that house and walk along the beach looking for those who are stranded in need of rescue would bring them back into their house nurse them to health until they could get help. Now what struck me is that was one of the earliest structures built in our South Florida cities where these houses of refuge. And it struck me what an interesting picture of what the call of the church is to be dotted through a city. A place of rescue for those who've been shipwrecked. We've been going through this series and we've been looking at the book of Haggai. And it's a a prophet in the latter half of the Old Testament. We, the first week, looked through Haggai chapter 1. Last week we looked at the beginning of Haggai 2. And we're going to look at the end of the book, the rest of Haggai chapter 2. It's only two chapters long. Open with me to Haggai chapter 2 verse 9. We're going to jump in, but let me warn you, okay, just to kind of orient you, the book of Haggai, okay, um, this book is rich. I mean, this is deep stuff, okay. This is more like filet mignon than hamburger, okay. I don't mind a good juicy hamburger, and there's a time and a place for hamburger, but this is filet right here, okay. This is rich, deep stuff, this particular book of the Bible. And so I want you to hang in with me as we unpack the richness of what this book is trying to communicate, because it has a powerful word, West Pines, it has a powerful word for us as a church. Okay, take a look at this, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. The latter glory of this house, this is God speaking through Haggai, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The word peace there is the Hebrew word shalom. Their word shalom is much uh, broader than our word for peace. When we think of peace, we think of just like stop fighting, okay? We just think of rest. Shalom means holistic wellness, thorough thriving. God is saying he is going to bring shalom into this city. Why? He's going to bring all of this flourishing into the city. Why? Because this new house, this new temple, this new house of the Lord that they are building is going to be even greater than the first temple that they built. Okay, let me just give you a little context here for those of you who are just joining us in this series. Haggai is speaking to the people, God's people in Jerusalem. This is hundreds of years after guys like King David, who um, established Jerusalem as the capital, built a palace there. Then King Solomon, his son, built this incredible temple. 
People from all over the world came to see all that Solomon did, especially with this temple. He built this. This is hundreds of years later. The Babylonians had come through, wiped out Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, their houses, knocked down the palace, destroyed the temple, and took all of God's people back to Babylon in exile. A little over a generation later, they now have been released. They've come back to Jerusalem. That's in ruins. And they begin to rebuild it. One of the first things they did is they laid the, the foundation for a new temple. But then they stopped. And years went by. They started working on other things. They started rebuilding the rest of the city. More years go by. Now they're, they're building their houses. They're rebuilding new houses, luxurious houses. And in Haggai chapter 1, God speaks through the prophet Haggai and says, you are saying, you are operating like it's not time to build my house. It's just the foundation. It's in ruins. You're operating like it's not time. He says, but it is time. It's time. He says, do you think I'm okay with where your priorities are? He says, you're building your own houses but my house is in ruins. It's just a foundation. He says there's a problem with that. There's a worship problem with that. You're prioritizing your own houses before God's house. He says there's a worship issue. Your priorities are out of whack. He says Make, put your priorities right. And then he goes on to talk about it, and it is echoed right here. He says, but there's a practical issue. The temple is the presence of God in the city that leads to shalom. It's what leads to the flourishing of the city. Don't you want to establish the presence of God there? Why do you think it's a good idea to leave just this bare bones foundation? And so he says it's time. And God does this incredible thing at the end of chapter 1 we see. All of the people, the leaders on down to the last one of them, all of them were stirred and they got to work. A few months later, they're working, they're starting to build, and then this next verse that we just read was shared with them. And God spoke through Haggai the prophet and he said this, the latter temple, this next one that you're going to build is going to be even greater than the former. He says, you think Solomon's temple was impressive? Wait till you see what this next temple is like. He says, it's going to be even better. And they did. They built this temple. They finished it. In fact, this temple they're building is the foundation of the temple. It's the temple that when you read in the New Testament, Jesus coming to a temple, it's to this temple hundreds of years later. When you hear about the early church in the book of Acts, meeting in the temple, it's this temple. Now, oh, now um, recently around the time of Jesus, one of the kings named Herod had built more and added to that temple, but it was built on the basic structure that they are in the midst that Haggai and uh, other prophets like Zechariah are speaking to in this time, building on that temple. But what God is saying is it's going to be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. That's a tall order. Because Solomon's temple got the world's attention. It's glory, it's innovation. I mean, Solomon spared no expense and also God's stamp of approval. Remember we talked about this the last couple weeks. When Solomon dedicated the, t- the temple, can you imagine being there that day? Solomon is praying over the temple. There's an altar with a sacrifice. When he finishes praying, he says, Amen. Lightning comes down from heaven, searing through the sky, and explodes on the altar, lighting that sacrifice in flames. 
that would have been something to see. Can you imagine that? And so when God is saying, hey, this temple is going to be even greater than the former, he's not just saying, hey, the upholstery is going to be an upgrade. This is an amazing statement. Okay, hold on to that thought. Let's dig a little deeper. Go to verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, a few months later, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. So Haggai is going to go ask the priests about the Old Testament law. He's got a legal question for them. Here's what it is. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone, he's going to reverse the equation, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now he's saying, okay, what? We're talking about a temple and now we're talking about like meat that's clean. I mean, what are we talking about here? Okay, this is a legal question and it's talking about the formula in the law. The first is two different equations flipped on top of each other. He says first, if I were to take meat that has been declared holy, that would be ceremonially holy, so maybe it's meat from a sacrifice, it's been declared holy. He says if I am carrying that meat and what is holy and clean touches something else, does that transfer the cleanness to that other item? The answer is no. Then he reverses it. He says, okay, if I touch something unclean like a dead body, and by the way, of all the unclean things that are listed in the Old Testament law, a dead body is like the most unclean. If I touch a dead body and then I go touch something, does it transfer the uncleanness? The answer was yes. So cleanness doesn't necessarily make something clean, but uncleanness makes something unclean. Are you following me with me here? You with me? Okay. So for example, clean cannot make what's unclean clean. The unclean can make the clean unclean. Does that make it better? Or did I just say clean too many times in a row? Okay. All right. So let me just give you an example. Let's say I have leprosy. I don't have leprosy, just for the record, okay? Some of you are like, I shook his hand this morning. Okay, no, I, this is not an announcement. I, I don't have leprosy, okay? Let's say, but for pretend, I have leprosy. And let's say, which is a skin disease and was considered very, very unclean. In the Old Testament, if there was a leper and he's walking into a city, he had to announce himself as being unclean. It's not that they're just being mean to lepers. It's because if they touch someone... They make them unclean. Okay, so for example, let's say I have leprosy, and let's say you are a priest, and it's your day to go serve in the temple. So you go do all of the ceremonial washings. There's all these ways you have to make yourself ceremonially clean. You put on the special garments. You are on your way to the temple in Jerusalem. I happen to walk by you in the street, and we high-five each other. Did you make me clean 
or did I make you unclean? What just happened? Unclean. I just transferred my uncleanness to you. Some of you are like, that's how I am at work. I see someone coughing and trying to give me a high five. Like, I run. You know, I don't want that on me, okay? So we think of clean and unclean in terms of hygiene. Um, my, uh, uh, Rebecca and I are expecting um, baby number three. The due date is one month from today. You clap. As a sign that you're going to come over and rock her late at night, right? You're, that's that kind of support? Okay. So I'm freaking out a little bit because we're one month out, okay, kind of getting back in the mode of, of baby mode, all right? And I'm just kind of remembering what it's like to have, like, like a little babies. And so I was thinking back, and each one of my other two children did this. When they were crawling around, okay, they touch things when they get to that crawling stage. They touch things indiscriminately. And then they immediately do something with everything they take in their hand. What do they do? They put it directly into their mouth, okay? Which, because I've got a little germ issue, there's usually screaming on my end trying to get them to stop doing that. Okay, so they have these baby hands, which are cute and very dirty, okay? And so I remember each one of them, I would be, both of them did this to me. I would have them over on their back. I'd be like, right, like in their face and tickling them, and they're laughing, and they get their arms going, and each one of them did this at one point. They somehow got their hand in my mouth and hooked me on the cheek, okay? Sometimes it was on the jaw, which is not easy to extract. And as cute as that sounds, all I can think of are the germs I just ingested. Okay. Now, did I make that little baby hand clean? No, it just defiled my mouth, okay? Okay. This is the point. The point that, that, that Haggai, God is having Haggai draw out. There's this formula in the law. When clean and unclean come together, one of them wins. One of them transfers. Unclean transfers to clean. Okay. Before you'd go to the temple, if you're a priest, you would not touch anything unclean because you have to go into the temple clean. If you're going to visit the temple, you have to get clean because the temple is clean and you can defile it. All right. This is not talking about hygiene. This is a spiritual issue of cleanness and uncleanness at a level that we don't necessarily think of all the time. It's thinking at a, it's a spiritual issue happening here. Okay. It sets this framework is the second thing we need to see from this text. Let's keep going. Let's dig even deeper. Verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the, of the ninth month, 
Since the day that you laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here. He's talking a lot about blessing. It goes all the way back to verse 9 when he said something greater is coming. He says, I will bring peace here, bring that shalom. Here's what he's talking about. He says, when you laid that foundation, how did it go for you? He said, your your crops didn't flourish. I didn't bless you. He says, but from this day on, now that you are placing stone upon stone, now that you are raising up this temple, from this day on, I will start to bring that shalom. I will start to bring that blessing. I will start to bring that flourishing. But when it was just a foundation, I did not bless you. In fact, he said, everything you touched was as if it was unclean. He says, I didn't bless you because I counted it before me as unclean. He's saying, you were like, you were unclean. What is it then that they touched? Did you notice how it began? It's transitioning from this whole legal question. He says, so it is with my people. They have touched something unclean, so everything they are touching, I'm not blessing. I'm counting it as uncleanness. What is he saying? Okay, hang with me here. Let's take this even deeper. Here's what he's saying. You've touched a dead body, Jerusalem. You just had a foundation of a temple, and it was like a corpse. It was in ruins. You left this body in ruins there, this this corpse of a body. And because that corpse was in your midst... It was like bringing uncleanness on you, so so the uncleanness transferred to you and transferred to everything you did. I would not bless you. But now that you're putting stones on top of stones, and now that you're building it, now that you're raising this corpse, now that you're bringing life to this dead body, now I will start bringing shalom to your city. You follow me here? Okay. Hold on to these pieces. We're going to read one more section, the final section of Haggai, and then we're going to draw all of these pieces together. Here's the last section. Final words of Haggai. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. That's later that same day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The end. I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like it kind of ends abruptly, right? That's a cool word, deservable, but it just kind of seems like it stops suddenly, like there should be more, just kind of like right in the middle. What is this last thing? He's speaking to the governor, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. And it's a pretty exciting word. He says, there's coming a day I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. 
I'm going to overthrow all the kingdoms. All the kings I will bring to their knees. I will destroy all the powers of their army. I will bring them all to their knees. And then he says, I will make you Zerubbabel. He calls him his servant, his chosen one. I will make you like a signet ring. Now what's a signet ring? A signet ring represented the authority of a monarch. It was a literal ring that they would wear. And if there's a decree or a contract that was written up, they would, they would put soft wax at the bottom and he would press his uh, ring on it. Or it would be soft wax that would seal a scroll and he would press his ring on that seal of wax. It would leave his specific insignia and it would show that this was true by his authority. Now notice that he says he's not going to give Zerubbabel a signet ring. He's going to make him a signet ring. Did you notice that? He's going to make him in to the authority. He's going to overthrow all the kingdoms, all their armies, and make Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the authority over all the kings and over all the kingdoms. That's pretty exciting. Man, there's a problem with that. Let's walk through. I mean, there's four things that we, we just saw. I mean, there's a problem. Okay, first of all, that never happened to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Right? I mean, Persia, I mean, they were defeated by Greece, who had a very strong army. They were defeated by Rome, who had a very strong army. I mean, that's long after Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. I mean, when was Zerubbabel established? I mean, this is the word of God. I mean, when was Zerubbabel established on a throne over all these other kingdoms? Okay, that's kind of weird. I mean, then there's that, this, the other thing, kind of moving backwards through these four things that we learned. The second thing is it's talking about he's going to bring this shalom and this prospering flourishment to Jerusalem. I mean, I guess it kind of happened. I mean, they did okay. It's nothing to, like, write home in the history books about. Okay, but then he says the, the former, um, the new temple will be better than the former temple. I mean, we have the account of when they dedicated this new temple. It's in Ezra chapter 6. You can go back and look at it. I mean, it's pretty underwhelming. It says, essentially, and they built the temple, and there was great joy. That's it. No fire from heaven. I mean, I don't know what's better than fire from heaven, like angels just appearing and stuff. Like, there was none of that. I mean, it didn't seem like it's that much better than him. I mean, okay, so, so Zerubbabel's not the, the king and, um, you know, never was put over all the nations. There's never this, this flourishing. I mean, and then the, the temple was never like, you know, even didn't seem like it was even better than before. I mean, what, what is he talking about? I mean, this is God's word. Well, see, I, it seems like this book ends like right in the middle of a story, right? It kind of ends abruptly. And it's because it does. But it ends with a hint of how the story really ends. And to tell you how that story ends, let me just jump forward. Uh, you can just stay in, in Haggai, but let me jump over to Luke 3. Let me just read a couple verses from a part of the Bible we often just kind of skip over and we don't know what to do with. Because it's reasons like this that these verses are so important. Let me just read this to you. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then it says, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, who's the son of Heli, the son of 
Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of... Wait a minute, what was that? I'm going to read that verse again because that sounded familiar. The son of Joanan, the son of Resa the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Does that name sound familiar? What does that mean? That means Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, is receiving a word. And, and this man will one day through his line, his descendants, his great, 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 etc., grandson, would be a man named Jesus. And what happened with Jesus, the servant of God, the chosen one? Jesus made himself like a servant who, even though he had equality with God, emptied himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that God highly exalted Jesus put him at the right hand of God the Father so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's happening at the end of Haggai? He's pronouncing a promise on the house of Zerubbabel that Zerubbabel wouldn't see in his day, but it would be one of his descendants named Jesus who would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The book of Haggai ends in the middle of the story. That's going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Okay, wait a minute. That gives us a little clue here to how this is supposed to happen. I mean, how is it that that the temple is described as a corpse? Haggai says it's like a corpse. But as you're putting these stones on it, as you're raising this corpse to life, it will send shalom out to all of God's people. What did Jesus say? He walked into that very temple and he said you tear this temple down and in three days I will rise it up again and it says they're like what do you know how long it took to build this temple and the gospel writer says they didn't realize he was talking about the temple of his what his body Jesus body is the corpse That when it is raised back to life, as it is raised back to life, brings the peace and shalom and flourishment. His very resurrection is what brings the shalom and peace into your life. Do you see what this is preparing us for in Haggai? Hundreds of years, thousands of years before today, it's preparing us for the gospel. Why? Because Jesus did something that temple could never do. He took the paradigm of the law and turned it upside down. When it came to that temple that they were building, you had to get cleaned up. Cleaned before you went into that temple so you didn't defile it. What did Jesus do? He was in Jerusalem one day and a leper came and fell down at his feet, not daring to touch the rabbi. Because all the other rabbis and scribes and Pharisees and Levites and Sadducees, when they saw a broken, needy, unclean person, they walked to the other side of the robe, but not your Jesus. 
when the leper fell down at his feet, what did Jesus do? Did he talk to him? First thing he did is he did thing that would make the entire people around him gasp. He touched him. He touched him, a touch that that leper probably had not felt in years, maybe decades. He touched the leper and said this, go and show yourself to the priest and show him that you are clean. What did Jesus do? He did, does he defiled by his uncleanness? The cleanness of Jesus overcame the uncleanness of the leper. Is that good news for you, Christian? His cleanness transferred to that leper so that as he's going, his uncleanness is washed clean and he goes to this temple that had no ability to cleanse him and was already clean because of Jesus. How could Jesus possibly do that? It's because one day he would be hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And he would die on the cross, taking all of our sin and uncleanness on himself. But he's so powerful that he overcame our uncleanness by his cleanness. And, that, and he was a dead corpse, but he was raised back to life. And it's his resurrection that shows us that we are fully clean, releasing shalom and flourishment into our lives. His clean overcame. That's why the new temple that was to come, it wasn't a building. All of Haggai is saying, it's not a building, how could it be? This world doesn't need another building. You have to clean yourself up before you go to it. It needs the presence of Jesus that goes to the uncleanness to rescue it. What he did confounded these religious priests and rabbis that would go nowhere near the uncleanness. What did he do? He went into the houses of tax collectors and sinners. He touched dead bodies and raised them to life. He touched the sick and ailing. He spoke to Samaritans, the woman at the well. He went to it, and each one of those instances are a microcosm of the macro story that the Son of God left the perfection of heaven, and he came to us. He came into the midst. He was an incarnation. It says he was the tabernacle, is what John 1 says, tabernacling among us. He is the true temple housing the presence of God. But this temple, Jesus, his cleanness overcomes our uncleanness and he comes into the mess to rescue us. And do you know what that means for us, church? We are his body. Our, we're not building a building. It's not about st stones on top of each other. We're his body. We're the living stones. He's now put the Holy Spirit inside of us. When we come together, we make the body of Christ. We make the house of God together. We are the presence of God, out, the presence of Jesus out in the city. 
We're to be going to the needy, going to the hurting, going to the lost, going into the uncleanness because we were once unclean and made clean only by Jesus Christ. We're to be the houses of refuge dotting our city. That in the same way they would take in the exhausted, they would take in the, the hungry, they would take in the thirsty, they would take in the shipwrecked. We are to be the presence of God going into the city and proclaiming the message of the one that said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. To be the message of the one that said, those of you who are hungry, I am the bread of life. To be those of you to say the message of, of Jesus, those of you who are thirsting, when you drink of the living water, you will never thirst again. That is the message we are taking out. We are on a rescue mission. You are on a rescue mission, Christian. That is our calling out into this world. We are establishing a temple, the presence of Jesus here in our city. And so what does that mean for us as we leave the book of Haggai as a church? It's time. It's time. Take a step, Christian. Not later. Not one day. Not when you get a couple things worked out. The time is now. And may we be found with the faithfulness that God found in the days of Haggai. May we be found with the faithfulness that every last one of us was stirred to say it is time to release the presence of God in our city. Last week we talked about that many of us this time last year said, you know what? We know what our priorities are. It's not our houses, it's building his house. That's, that's not, this, it's not this church building. We're building the presence of Jesus in the city. And so he said, we realize that is our priority. That's why we have been left on this planet. It, it's not because we're supporting our church and our church has a vision that we want to get behind. It's because it's the vision on our lives individually together. We are on mission and so many of us this time last year, we took a bold step and said, Jesus, we believe that you might do a historic work through our city and we want to be a part of it. And so we did something we'd never done. We took a commitment card and we said, we're going to fill this out and walk through, okay, what are we going to do to prioritize the work of the Lord in our personal finances and our generosity? And so many of us last year, we filled that out. We stretched ourselves. We, we, we filled that out. We handed it in so that we can plan as a church going forward. And we've turned that in and said, this is what we're going to do as a church. And so those of you who began that journey last year, we celebrated that last week and said, look, already the fruit of your labor has been seen throughout this year. And the challenge last week was there were some of you that said, look, this is the first time I've ever filled this out. And you look back and you say, you know what? I, I was just getting started. I, I want to go. I'm, I'm ready to take another step. And so maybe your challenge coming out of the book of Haggai, being res responding to God's word that it's time. Maybe some of you, you take this home. There's, these cards are in the seat backs in front of you. Maybe some of you, you take this home this week and you pray through this. Say, God, what are you calling me to do? There's, there's a, a, a website down there. There's a link that you can fill it out also online. And you say, I want to take this step in obedience. Some of you maybe were here last year and you said, look, I'm not ready to fill that out. I, I, I just, I don't know. I'm just not sure that I'm ready. But you say, you know what? This time I'm, I'm ready. 
Because when God moves through South Florida and does a historic work through the power of the gospel, I want to know I had the privilege of being a part of it. And so maybe some of you will take this home this, this week and for the first time fill it out. Maybe others of you, you say, look, I've just joined West Pine since last year, but this is my church, and so that means the vision of my church is the vision on my life. And so I'm not going to wait. I'm ready to take a step. I want to get in, involved and be behind helping fuel the mission to see the presence of God. And maybe you'll take this card home, and maybe this week you'll pray over it and turn it in next week or go on the link and, and fill that out and say, look, I want to be a part of this vision to see the presence of Jesus released in this city. When you came in, you found on your seat, you found this little hourglass. It's a sand timer. Go ahead and grab that. We want you to walk out of this series and walk out of here today with this hourglass as a reminder that it's time. And we want you to put this somewhere in your life, maybe it's at home, it's at work, it's in your car, as a reminder of whatever sphere that is, is as a reminder saying, I want to see what can happen if the presence of God moves through this sphere and transforms it. Maybe you take it with you to school, imagining what could happen if Jesus, the presence of Jesus transformed that school, or take it into your, leave it in your neighbor, there in your house because you want to see your neighborhood transformed or your friend group, or, or you want to see your home it sweep through your home. Put that in a place to remind you, you of, of that place. And we want to hear what's on your heart. And we want to see how we are sprinkled as granules of salt, as the aroma of Christ all through the city. And so here's what we want to ask you to do. We want you to place that somewhere that's on your heart that you want to see transformed by the power of God. And we want you to take a picture of it. Maybe you put it somewhere in the city, in a neighborhood, or with a view of the city, and you take a picture and you post it up online, and you, you fill out the, the hashtag um, WP, hashtag WP, it's time. We want to know what those places are that are on your heart, where God has you. Maybe you put it at, at uh, your school or at your work. Maybe you put it in your home, you take a picture of it, post it up online. We want to imagine together, see together how we are sprinkled through the city and help stir us up what could happen if the presence of Jesus flooded through our homes and our schools and our neighborhoods and our city and our workplaces to see it transformed. Why? Because all there is right now is a very small foundation in South Florida. Three to four percent of South Florida are committed followers of Christ. Do you know what that means for the vast majority of South Florida? The vast majority of South Florida are, is filled with souls facing an eternity away from Jesus. And those aren't just souls out there that are without names and faces. There are neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. There are family members, there are children and our siblings and our parents. And when God looks down at our church, may he find us as one of the churches in this community that says, here we are, send us. Will he find a church that says, we know what our priorities are, this side of heaven, our life, we're building a life for the next life and all of eternity, but for this life, I will leave it all on the field. I know my priorities. It's that the presence of Jesus Christ would flow through this city that we might have the privilege of seeing a historic work of God and see souls saved for eternity.
may he find a church wholly running after that. We're going to end our time together and end this series with communion. Communion is something that we were commanded to do as followers of Jesus. There was a moment when Jesus took the bread with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He took his bread and he broke it and he took the wine and he poured it out and he said, this bread symbolizes my broken body for you. This wine symbolizes my blood shed for you. And he says, I want you to eat this bread and this juice. I want you to take this as a reminder of my sacrifice for you as a celebration of what he did to take our uncleanness and replace it with cleanness. But as we're going out of here on Mission Church, you know what it's a reminder of? Our salvation was built at a great cost, the cost of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we who dare bear the name of Jesus, we're going to walk in His footsteps. And to bring the presence of Jesus is going to come at great cost to us. A privilege we gladly bear because we bear the name of Christ. But let's start as we go on that mission Let's start by enjoying this communion together. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you. You can find a communion station in the back or communion stations up front. And you're going to go to the front. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if he's your Lord and Savior, you can come to one of these stations in the front of the back. You're going to take the juice and drink it. You're going to take uh, the bread and you're going to eat it. Then go back to your seats as we sing uh, a closing song. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus today or you're not ready to say that he's your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to hold off because this is a proclamation that Jesus is your Savior and that he has washed you clean. But maybe today you said, I walked in here unclean, but I want to be washed clean today by Jesus for the first time. This is the perfect first step to find salvation. He's waiting with open arms to wash you clean. Put your faith in Jesus today. Do that by taking this communion. If that's you, if you're putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, when you come to one of these stations in the front or the back, you'll find these wooden cups. That's for those of you who are putting your faith in Jesus for the first time. The rest of the cups are for us, but that's to commemorate this day you took a step and put your faith in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for this reminder of the great cost that won our salvation. The broken body of Jesus. A corpse that you raised from the dead for our shalom. Thank you. We take this and remember you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.